Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. If you've been following along with us over the last number of programs, you know that we're in a new teaching series here at Exploring Bible Prophecy entitled Important Prophecy Terms. And we are comparing and contrasting seven sets of uh, terms, uh, two terms, and there's seven sets of them. And we are in the first of those seven sets called the Son of Man and comparing it and contrasting it with the term the Son of God. So we want to make sure that we understand the difference between the Son of God and Son of Man what they mean, and how are they used. And I think the most important aspect of this is how are they used, because we know that they are referring to the same man, Jesus Christ. But And, and, the, and you'll find a lot of ministries, uh, radio, television, churches that you may attend, where they tend to use the Son of Man and the Son of God interchangeably throughout the Bible with just a basic understanding that it's showing us that uh, Jesus Christ was indeed, as some people say, holy God and holy man. And when I mean holy, I mean as in a whole, W-H-O-L-E, whole, holy God, holy man. And of course, uh, that is a point that I, I firmly believe can be discussed uh, with Scripture because you'll recall uh, a few programs ago as we were going through the, the point about the Son of God, which we're focusing on first here, is that in Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus, while he was God, did not demand that he stay God, but allowed himself to take on the likeness of man. So he took on all of the attributes of what you and I have, and he did that as a gracious God to allow us to be able to completely and fully relate to him as a man and so that, the, so that God, through the man, Jesus, could exemplify for us what a Christian's life should be like. Of course, Jesus was completely sinless, and we don't have that capability because of the fall. But nevertheless, uh, it's as close as God will allow himself to be, to be fully us without being sinful, I guess is the best way to put it. So there are some aspects, some attributes of Christ as a man uh, that he did not bring with him when he transitioned, if you will, for lack of a better term, from being God to being in the likeness of a man in the flesh. So I think perhaps, and again, I'm not going to get all um, bothered by it to make the you know to to try to argue the point that this holy God and holy man at the same time uh, is or is not a critical point. What I'm concerned about is that they lose the distinction in the scriptures of the use of these terms because the Son of God is used 
uh, through the leading of the Holy Spirit by the writers of the Bible to convey one particular attribute of, of, of Jesus, one manifestation of Jesus, if you will, and the term Son of Man to um, convey a different manifestation of Jesus. And our purpose in uh, having this up front in our important prophecy term series is I think this is probably the most important set of terms that we need to uh, get a, a biblical scriptural grasp on. And that's why we're spending so much time. And if you've um, downloaded the worksheet that we use, that we use for every teaching series that contains all the scriptures that we're using, you can certainly see that we have a lot of scripture that we're going through to make this point um, as clear and understandable as I possibly can. And we've gone through different um, manifestations, or I shouldn't say manifestations, different concepts of the Son of God, uh, ways of, of looking at it, starting out with Luke 3 all the way at the top of the list of, of um, scriptures there and working our way down. And uh, those of you that have been following along with us for a while know that we have, um, we've looked at it from a number of different angles. And now we want to just specifically look here towards the end of this point number one, looking at the Son of God, just, as, just at the term Son of God, and let's see how it's used. And as we go through these and then uh, down the road here a little bit in a future program, transition over to the right side of that work page and look at the Son of Man, that this critical, what I believe is a critical difference in understanding of the terms will become clear to you and perhaps uh, allow you to look at the Bible and the the flow of the Bible uh, a little more clearly to see, because I really believe if you understand, if you grasp the difference in these terms, you'll be able to see much more clearly who is speaking to whom about what and what the subject matter is. And a lot of times we'll get the who's speaking to whom correct, but we lose the subject matter. And I think that's really uh, one of the more important aspects of any dialogue is what are they talking about? Just just not who's speaking to whom. And uh, seeing the term Son of God and Son of Man makes a big, it does to me, and it has for years, it makes a big difference. Uh, and I can really clue in much more quickly as to what the subject matter is when I see which term is being used. So again, let's look at um, just the scriptures that have to do with the, the Son of Man being used in its context. And let's start out with Luke chapter one. So if you're looking at your worksheet, you'll see that about, oh, two thirds of the way down in that list of scriptures, Luke chapter one, and we're going to go to verse 30, Luke chapter one, verse 30. And for those of you that are somewhat familiar with your Bible and particularly with the gospels here, you'll know that this is the, the introduction of Jesus here. And actually it's before the birth of Jesus. This is the angel coming to Mary and talking to her and sharing the good news with Mary, sharing the good news with Mary. So let's look at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 30 to 35. And it says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? Verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The Son of God. The point here being, and it's made very clear, I hope it's very clear to you, that there is no man involved in this um, conception and then obviously the subsequent birth with the mother that is the Holy Spirit. And it's therefore Jesus in this 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 concept is a, a direct product of God. So Jesus is the Son of God. And remember sometime back uh, early in our um, uh, starting out with point number one, the Son of God, we made the point that there are three other groups that are referred to as Son of God. And the reason they're referred to as Son of God is they are direct creations of God here on the earth. The first one is Adam. And we find that not only in the genealogy in the New Testament, we find that in, I believe it's chapter um, 5, I think it's chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 1, it refers to Adam as the son of God, in the likeness of God. And then we have the angels, and we find that in Job, um, where uh, the angels are referred to as sons of God. And again, it's because they are direct creations of God. And then we went to the New Testament and showed where the church, and this again, if you've uh, been with me for a while, you know I refer to the church as, as the difference between the worldly church, if you will, people who are claiming Christ but don't really believe as the lowercase c church, and then the real church, the, the people who do profess and do follow Jesus Christ to the best of their abilities through the gifts of the Holy Spirit as the upper cla- uppercase C Church or the capital C Church. And again, we're not talking brick and mortar. We're talking about a spiritual church made up of the precious stones, which are you and me as uh, followers of Jesus Christ. It says that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become a new creation in God. So God has created something new in you, and therefore he refers to you precious one, as a son or a son or daughter of the living God. And that makes us uh, heirs along with Christ. And and just to grasp that, you start to really understand when it says in Ephesians and other places that with this knowledge, with this understanding, that it should be growing in you, that it should cause you to walk, to walk worthy, to walk worthy of this calling that you have because you are a son or a daughter of the living God who created the universe. I mean, that's that's nothing short of awesome to me. But back to Luke chapter 1 and looking at verses 30 to 35, the point uh, that I wanted to make here, and hopefully it's clear to you that this Jesus was the product, if you will, in order to become flesh and blood, to become in the likeness of man, was the product of a union between the Holy Spirit of God, between God and Mary, and therefore he is this fleshly Jesus, 
And I want to make sure we make that distinction because Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is an eternal being. He is the second part of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The wonderful aspect of what we're talking about here and want to really emphasize is that God became flesh through Jesus Christ. This this second part of the Godhead became flesh so that he could relate directly to his the the crowning of his creation. That's mankind. He didn't do this to relate to animals. He didn't do it to relate to birds or fish <laughs> or to trees. And I try I don't want to be facetious here, but the point is he did this to relate to mankind because back in Genesis 1 it says let's make man in our image. So when man was made in the image of God, he was made flesh, but he was made sinless. We find in in Genesis chapter 5, I believe it's verse 3, it says when Seth was born, he was born in the likeness of man. It was no longer in the likeness of God because it was now tainted with the sin from the garden. So Jesus took on this likeness of man. So we never want to say that Jesus is a created being. Yes, he came in the flesh. He was born uh, through a woman, but it was through the uh, inner, the uh, inworking of the Holy Spirit, if you will. Uh, because I know uh, that there are uh, quote-unquote religions out there that say that Jesus is a created being and he is the brother of Satan. And that could be nothing short of one of the great lies that uh, Jesus is definitely a, a deity. He is God, but he came down in the flesh. So therefore, he is the son of God. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a believer in God, then you see this man that was born of a virgin as the son of God, not the son of a man. And that's the point that we will be pounding on the table as we go forward here, is this is the distinction between a righteous person, a believer in Jesus Christ, and an unrighteous person, someone who does not believe Jesus is truly God. He is truly the Son of God, made made flesh so that we could relate with him. But that's the point that's made here to Mary, is because of this immaculate conception, the holy child, verse 35 at the end, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. So if we understand how this all worked, that this was an intervention of God in the life of a woman, that this is a a work of God and not a work of a man. So we want to take some time here and look at all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and see uh, little snippets of what they say about the Son of God here. And so we've looked at Luke. We've looked at uh, the angel talking to Mary here. Let's take a quick trip back to the left in our Bibles and go to the book of Mark. And let's look at uh, Mark chapter 1 and simply look at the first verse. So Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And, of course, this is... Um, one of the uh, the four Gospels. This is obviously being written through the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit. And Mark says in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel, the good news. Gospel means good news. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. People say, well, it's interchangeable. He could put the Son of Man. Well, no, you can't, because then you would be acknowledging that Jesus was born of Joseph. And there are those that will come back and say, well, no, he could say Son of Man because he's manifested himself God has manifested himself, as we just talked about a few moments ago, manifested himself in the flesh, and therefore he's the son of man. Well, I I personally don't see that. I don't know how you can draw that conclusion, because when you say a man is the son of a man, I am the son of a man. I'm the son of my father. Jesus was the product of an immaculate conception, God and Mary, through the Holy Spirit, so I, I can't see that, well, he's, he's manifested himself as flesh. I believe that really takes away from the, the powerful meaning and the distinction and the use of those two terms. And hopefully as we go through these scriptures, you'll, you'll see that with me. Now, let me, let me make a point right here that um, uh, I, I believe um, pretty emphatically about this, but uh, I am not close-minded. I do not want to think that this is what I think, therefore this is the truth, the total truth. And I am certainly open to uh, other uh, perspectives on this. And if you have a, uh, you, you think that you have a pretty strong case from the scripture, and I would really prefer if you, if you do contact me that you not, you not quote other people um, because they're, they're, they're fallible because they're man. If you if you want to quote, I would really prefer that you quote the scripture um, to make your point. Uh, and I certainly want to talk about that. And and I would like if you do that to please let me use your comments on the air because if you have good comments, I'd like to have them over the air so that other other people can appreciate your perspective on that. Uh, and I think it helps to foster. Um, interaction uh, and fellowship, which is really uh, something we'd like to uh, certainly um, develop through this radio ministry, is that we we look at this as a family, and that we're uh, we're learning together here. And I'm merely being a facilitator. So if you have uh, comments, please uh, send them to me. A number of you have been sending comments to me. It's Steve at whcbradio.org, and I've appreciated them, uh, but um, none of them have been such that. They said, well, let's, let's get that out over the air. So if you'd like to do that, please please do it. So what we're going to do as we go forward here is uh, look at some other scriptures, and we've just gone to uh, Mark chapter 1, and in our next teaching portion, uh, in our next program, we're going to go to Matthew, Matthew 27. Uh, but we now need to transition over to our Q&A portion of our um, daily program, and we have been continuing along in a question that we started some time ago, and it's actually turned into a little, <laughs> a little mini teaching series in and on its own of not only about the, the, the manifestation and the role of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible, which is what started the question, but also looking at other ways that the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, interact with an earth that while it started out at the very beginning as sinless and it will end at the very end or at least the very end of the book of the Bible in Revelation 22, 
it will end in a sinless state again. So that's when God personally interacted himself with the earth when it was in a, in a sinless state. We've talked about that in some detail. And now we're in a position where we want to transition to looking at other ways that the triune Godhead has dealt with man, and of course man being in a fallen, sinful state. Uh, so God is, is interacting through, through either uh, Jesus or a pre-incarnate Jesus, which we'll see here in a few moments in the, in the uh, Old Testament, or through Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So just very quickly, this is a question that we got from uh, Rich in Indian Springs, and we've been dealing for quite a while, and he was basically stating, and he's obviously done his uh, study uh, from the makeup of his question. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the restrainer of evil, who is the Holy Spirit, and I happen to agree with him, is taken out of the way so that the Antichrist can come on the scene to start the seven-year tribulation. And his question is, if the Holy Spirit is removed because of that, if the Holy Spirit is the restrainer and he's removed from the earth, how is the tri- how are the tribulation saints of Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, saved during the tribulation? It's a very good question. Uh, the answer is they are saved through the Holy Spirit, and that we're, we're turning this into a little bit of a mini-teaching series to answer the question. And I hope you don't mind, because I'm... I'm using uh, scripture to do this, and uh, hopefully I haven't lost you along the way because I find this to be very interesting to see how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit manifest themselves to mankind to um, basically guide man and to give man the guidance because we have a loving, gracious God who wants to guide us because the ultimate goal is for us to have a saving knowledge of him through his son so that we can have the confident expectation of eternal life with him. And that's uh, that's what I'm looking forward to, and I hope you are as well, as we uh, are about the Lord's work on, work on this earth until he comes for us. So we've transitioned now to, um, in our last program, we talked about Genesis 18. Genesis 18, and we had just started that. So let's go back to Genesis 18 and get another perspective on how God deals with man in man's sinful state. Uh, just because man's in a sinful state does not mean that God has stayed a distance like other religions. Uh, their, their gods uh, are a distant, uh, dis, uh, disassociated type God. Well, our God is not that way. He gets directly involved in the lives of men and women. Um, on a regular basis, and we want to look at examples of that. And of course, we're in the Old Testament uh, when we do this, and in Genesis chapter 18, and we started out by looking at verses 1 through um, 3, and it says, Now the Lord appeared to him. So when you see Lord, you're thinking, okay, this is God. Uh, but let's get some explanation here by looking at the context. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him, by the oaks of Mamre, where he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men. So remember in verse 1 it said, the Lord appeared to him, and now it says, three men were standing opposite him. Uh, And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. 
So he recognized what was going on here because it says that he basically bowed himself to the earth, which we would assume here is like so many times in the Old Testament when an angel appeared, man would shudder and fall to the ground. So it says he bowed himself to the earth and said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. So what we're, we're reading here in Genesis chapter 18 is that God is manifesting himself through these three angels who have come to Abram because he wants to bring Abram some information here, and it's going to have to deal with Sarah, his wife, uh, bearing a son, and it has to do with, with Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's a lot of information that's being conveyed here to Abram. So let's stay in chapter 18 of Genesis, and let's go over to verse 17. And, and it says, the Lord said, so these three men are standing there with Abram, and they've had a meal with him. They've had a meal with him. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And of course, he's referring to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their idolatry and their um, uh, perverse uh, lifestyle and so forth. So he says, should I hide? The Lord said, should I hide this from Abraham? And go down to verse 22. Then the two men, remember there were three, then the two men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. So now we have a further distinction of three men, all are angels, but two are basically being referred to as angels. And by the way, just uh, very quickly, let's go over to verse uh, 1 of chapter 19. So just look across the page, or at least that is in my Bible. Go across the page to chapter 19. It says, now the two angels, they've been referred to as men, the two men, now they're referred to as angels. So we have that clarification. So we've got the three people, the three men. We now know that they're angels. We know that two of them are continuing to be referred to as angels, and they're the ones that go to Sodom and Gomorrah and execute judgment, while the other one is referred to as the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, you'll see an interaction between angels and men and women. But in some instances, you will see the term the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. And that's what we have here. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ directly interacting. And we'll see later on that when it's the angel of the Lord, there is a great degree of reverence that is expected, demanded, and is given. Whereas when it's just angels, they say, okay, man, get up from your fallen position before me. Get up because I'm like you. I'm here to serve the Lord. So we see something very specific here about God manifesting himself in the form of the angel of the Lord, as well as two other angels coming. So we see God is still very, not I shouldn't say still, but is very involved, very interactive as he does that through the second and third persons of the Holy Spirit, of the Triune Godhead, rather. 
Okay, we will continue this Q&A in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.